we get to go through Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. Would you turn in your Bibles? <clears throat> Hebrews 5 and verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I'll step back and we'll pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your love. Thank you for the mercy that you show us. Thank you for your goodness and kindness and, and how you continu continually care for us. Thanks for today a day that you've given us to set aside our labors. And not just, just our physical labors, not just our jobs, but we can be reminded that it is not our works that commend us to you, but it is the works of Jesus. Grant that we might remember that. And Father, we pray that you would also strengthen our faith as we look to this passage, that you would help us to come to Jesus, our high priest. We pray for our children and children's worship, and we beg you, Lord, that you might bring them to yourself, that you might save their souls, and that you might do this in accordance with your covenant promises which you made to Abraham, promising that you would be our God and the God of our descendants after us. We ask for this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by reading just a, a short section from uh, the book uh, Wounded Healer by uh, Henry Nowen. Um, it's a book really written to, to pastors or those in pastoral ministry. It's one that has been uh, a real encouragement in my life. Uh, there's one section that I want to read in which he's dealing with, um, it's a, just an autobiographical sketch from uh, early in his life, and I think it captures something that I, I hope will guide us in our meditation. He says, a few years ago when I was chaplain of the Holland America line, I was standing on the bridge of a huge Dutch ocean liner which was trying to find its way through a thick fog into the port of Rotterdam. The fog was so thick, in fact, that the steersman could not even see the bow of the ship. The captain, carefully listening to a radar station operator who was explaining his position between other ships, walked nervously up and down the bridge and shouted his orders to the steersman. When he suddenly stumbled over me, he blurted out, Dang it, Father, get out of my way. But when I... W but when I was ready to run away, filled with feelings of incompetence and guilt, he came back and said, Well, why don't you just stay around? This might be the only time I really need you. And frankly, sometimes that's the way a pastor feels. You know, it's like, uh, well, in a crisis, okay, now you're helpful, but beyond that, we just assume you stay out of our way. And, uh, and, but, but that's not the point that I want us to, to draw from this. I think it's easy for each of us to live our lives kind of like the captain captained his ship. And that is to say, if we're not in crisis, we assume we've got this. Right? We just assume Jesus keep out of our way. And though we would never quite say that, but sometimes isn't that kind of how we live our lives? That we, we just kind of assume that we can handle it and that we'll, we'll take us where we need to go. This year... 2022, the theme for our preaching has been following Jesus. And the idea is that it's easy for us to follow so many other things. 
there are, there are temptations for us to follow the church. There are temptations for us to follow a, a, a creedal statement. There are temptations for us to follow the crowd. Temptations for us to follow our friends. Temptations for us to follow our family. And we end up following all these other things. But when you look at what Jesus said in ministering when he was on earth, one of his most repeated commands was, follow me. Not follow my way, not follow my teaching, but follow me. And so we've been looking at that. And the book of Hebrews... I chose because of the fact that's really the theme. The women's Bible study are going to be going through uh, a Bible study book uh, entitled Better, and it's a study of the book of Hebrews. Um, so this portion of the sermon is brought to you by the two women's Bible studies. Uh, you can sign up in the foyer. Um, but uh, the, the idea that we, we, we love to have these uh, uh, teaching ministries overlap, and so they're going to be going through that, and the idea of better is, is a theme that you see in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is better, the new covenant is better, and it's a continual push of better. But it isn't saying that he's better just so we know he's better. It's saying he's better so that we, we, we will follow him. The Jews at this time were, were in a, a, an interesting situation in that they'd been raised in the old covenant. But now they find themselves in the new covenant believing in Jesus. And the transition between the two was, was a difficult one to, to, to take. It was like they had a foot on each boat. And, and, and what do we do? And the author of Hebrews is saying, step off of the old one, because Jesus is better, because the new covenant is better. And so it's that constant push to, to follow Jesus, who is the Lord of the new covenant. And so there is that, that pull that is continually there, because they were tempted as well. The Jews at this time were tempted to just go back to the Old Covenant. It was easier, right? Because we'd always done that. It's just, you know, that's the way we've always done it. Now, good thing you've never heard that in a church in the New Testament. But they, 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 they wanted to do what they'd always done. They wanted to stay put. Their family wanted them to come back. Their friends wanted them to come back. And the temptation was there. The author of Hebrews is saying, no, follow Jesus. And so this section that we're looking at is he's looking at Jesus as the high priest and is, is showing that aspect of, of Jesus' ministry. And with it comes this, in this description of Jesus as the high priest, is an implicit invitation to us to come to the high priest. To not just state, oh, I believe that he's a better high priest. Check, got that. But if he's the better high priest, what ought I to do? I ought to respond to that. And if he is the only great high priest, I ought to come to him. And so the invitation today is to come to our high priest and to come with your burdens. Verses 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. I, I love the, the joke that's uh, told of a, a man who is uh, shipwrecked on a deserted island for about five years. And while he was there, he said, well, I've got to make the most of it. And so he, he began building. He built himself a house and built two other buildings. And, and he's rescued one day. And the folks come ashore uh, to rescue him. And they say, wow, you've done amazing in five years. You know, we expected things to be horrible, but you've got like three buildings. He said, I do. Come up. Let me show them to you. 
So they walk up with him. He says, this is my house. And, and he lets them in. It's my kitchen's here. And, and uh, you know, the sleeping area's here. And here's where I, I kind of spend my, my evenings. And so I've got that set out. And I said, oh, well, well, what's that other building over there? I said, well, that's my church. Every Lord's Day, I go to church. And so I go over there and I have a time of worship and I pray. And, and it's just a wonderful time. And they said, well, what's that other building? Oh, that's the church I used to go to. Right? And, and I tell that because it, it kind of reminds us that even if we're left by ourselves, we'll sin, right? Our problems and our hardships, our burdens in our life are not just caused by other folks. Frankly, we bring a lot of them on ourselves and beginning to understand that and to see that my own sin creates problems. But you know what? I'm not all alone. I'm surrounded by a whole bunch of sinful people. And that really gives me a burden. That really makes it hard. That makes this life much, much more complicated. Verse 7, it says, In the days of his flesh. Notice verse 9, And having been made perfect. Those, those two phrases uh, designate the, the separation of this passage. The first part is talking about Jesus in his incarnation, in the days of his flesh. The second part is talking about in his, his work, in his resurrection, as he's been made perfect. And so that's the separation. So the first part, he's talking about Jesus' life in his incarnation. What was that like? What, what did he face? What, what, what was Jesus' incarnation like for him? We get a glimpse into that incarnation with what is told of us. And what does it say? Well... When we talk about his flesh, we read words like loud crying, tears, and he suffered. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> he faced hardship. He faced burdens, did he not? Jesus was burdened while he lived life in this sin-cursed world. Jesus, who was sinless, was burdened as he lived life. And how did he deal with his burdens? He, he cried out to God. In prayer, he took them to God. He took his burdens to the Father. So we too can take our burdens to Jesus Christ. And doesn't God continually invite us to come to him with our burdens? Think of Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, where the prophet tells the people uh, in the voice of God, um, my people have committed two evils. They've rejected me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. He talks about two sins. One of them is, is uh, to reject God and the satisfaction that He provides. The second is to try to find that satisfaction somewhere else in our own making. But at the heart of the longing for each of these is the thirst. And He does not condemn the thirst. He uses the thirst to draw us to Himself. God has given us a thirst in this life so that we will seek it to be satisfied in Him. He wants us to come to Him with the burden of thirst. What we see when we look at Isaiah chapter 55. In Isaiah 55, we have another invitation to come as we read, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, 
and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Look at the burdens that the people have that he uses to call them to himself, to invite them in the midst of their burden. He says, you're thirsty. Come to me. Come to me. In the burden of thirst, come. But then you have no money. No problem, come and buy. Even though we're lacking in money, even though we're lacking in, in, in having the, 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 the water that satisfies our soul, God invites us in our burdens to come to him. Which leads us to the great invitation of Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God is continually calling us to himself in our burdens. To come with your burdens. You got burdens? Surely you do. Bring them to him. Bring your cares. Bring him your cares. Looking back at our passage He talks about Jesus. Jesus, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications. That's to say that Jesus was burdened and he had cares in his life by which he would go to the Father and he would pray. Cares that were so great that he he describes them as being crying loudly with tears. And we read about his suffering a little bit later on. This, This idea... That Jesus, as he was walking through this sin-cursed world, interacting with sinful people, bore heavy burdens, and he brought them to the Father. And that's a reminder to us that we are to bring them to our high priest, those same concerns that we have. Think of the concerns that, that Jesus had. He had concerns of, for, for his own self, right? We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he cries out to God, what does he say? He says, my God... If it is possible, take this cup from me. He's aware of exactly what he's facing at that moment. He knows that what's coming upon him is the wrath of God for every sin that is committed by all of his people through all of eternity. The billions and billions of sins that the millions and millions of believers have committed are going to be heaped upon him and he's going to have to bear in the short time upon the cross the full weight of those eternities of wrath. And he knows this and he feels it and it's a burden for himself and he cries out and he says, Father, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but thine be done. He has that burden for himself. So it's not wrong as we face the burdens in this life to bring them to God. But he's also burdened with the needs of others. I think of three instances in particular that come to my mind. The first one is is the woman at the well. Remember, Jesus stayed at the well while his disciples went into the city to get provisions. Why did he stay at the well? Jesus, who's omniscient, he knew he had an appointment, right? He knew the woman was coming. He knew the woman was coming and she needed salvation. He knew the woman was coming and she needed comfort. He knew the woman was coming and he knew that he was going to use that woman as the key to open up the lock of the hearts of all of the people in that city Do you think he just sat there and said, okay, this is going to happen? I have a suspicion 
that he was praying for that woman. He was praying for what was going to go on. He was taking it to his father. He recognized that it was his father who was going to do this great work. He was praying to the Spirit, Spirit, be ready, be moving that woman's heart even now. Be moving the city even now. Begin your work, O God, because this is his will. He was concerned for her. He was concerned for the woman with the issue of blood. Remember her? She had 12 years. She had an issue of blood. This woman was twice excluded from her people. First off, as, as a woman at that time, she did not have all the rights that the men have. She was separated. But secondly, she's a woman who was bleeding for 12 years, so she was ceremonially unclean. She couldn't come in. She couldn't do any of the elements of worship. She was isolated. Was Jesus aware of her? I know he says, who touched me? But doesn't it seem as though he said that more to really draw attention to her and to say, this woman deserves our attention, which is why all three of the synoptic gospels record her? Because it was important. Did he never think of her before? Did he never think of her after? What are the problems that she faced after she was healed? Some commentators have said that, that she touched the hem of his robe, and they've said that the hem of the robe would have tassels on it, and the rabbi would pray by touching the hem of his robe. Is that what she was doing? You think Jesus prayed for her? And the exclusion she may still face? from the people that had been excluding her for 12 years? Do you think he was praying for her for the judgment that she would face and the condemnation for the people around? Do you think he was praying for the people around that they wouldn't judge and condemn her? Jesus was burdened with this and he prayed. Jesus was burdened for the man with the withered hand. The only time in which the New Testament ever records that Jesus was angry was the man with the withered hand. The only time that the New Testament says Jesus was angered was when there was a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day and the Jews were looking not at his suffering, not at looking to, to ease his hardship, but at Jesus that they might condemn him because he might actually do something good on the Sabbath. And Jesus was filled with anger. Do you think that's all he cared about was just, just to justify his own name? Or do you think his anger came from the fact that this man was suffering? And do you think his, his concern for that man ended when he simply healed him? Can't you just see the Jews condemning this man? How dare you get healed on the Sabbath? <laughs> they were quite capable of condemning just about anybody, weren't they? The difficulties this man would face. Now he's got to learn a trade. He can't, he can't beg anymore. Jesus continued to pray. Do you think he prayed for the hearts of those who would have condemned? Absolutely. Jesus was burdened by this world and he prayed. There are three areas where I want to encourage us to think about um, taking our burdens, our cares to Christ. The three cares that I want us to be aware of. The first is violence around us. The violence around us. Um, those who've been a part of this congregation for very long are aware of just how much that troubles me. And one of the reasons it troubles me is because of what I read in the scripture about violence. Remember in Genesis chapter 6, God tells Noah that he's going to send a flood to destroy all the life on the earth except uh, eight people and two of each animal. That's a, that's a lot of wrath, isn't it? Think about why. Verse 11 of chapter 6, he says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Notice, there is the corruption and there is the mention of violence. There's not a mention of immorality. 
right? There's not a mention of breaking the Sabbath day. There's not a mention of, of breaking any of the other commandments. There's a, a, a mention of violence. Now we later see in Genesis 9, one of the reasons for that, because God institutes capital punishment, anyone who would kill man by man, he shall be killed. Why? Because man was made in the image of God. The violence is not a violence against man, it is a violence against God. It is a hatred of the very image of God upon this earth that people are striking out against. And when we strike out in violence against another person, it is an act against God Himself. It is striking out at the image of God. It is a belittling of the image of God and of the work and the, 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 the highest, the pinnacle of all of God's creation. And we need to, to understand that that's exactly what violence is. And the violence is all around us. Our hearts are hardened to the violence, are they not? Oh, there was another mass killing in, in the South. There was, a, you know, uh, someone, uh, a murder-suicide over here. Uh, we've, we've got a conference coming up um, in November. There are going to be two conferences. One conference is Friday night. That's for the whole congregation. I could say this part of the service is brought to you by your Voices Committee, but... Uh, but that's an important conference because the conference that we want everybody to come to, Saturday is Voices, on Friday night is a conference uh, to stand up against human trafficking, to recognize the problems that are associated with that. Our, our keynote speaker this year is a woman who, uh, her PhD was writing on the uh, complex trauma in the lives of survivors of human trafficking. And in her PhD project, one of the things she did is she gave uh, cameras to women who, had, who were survivors of human trafficking and said, take pictures for a month and then put captions by each one. They just couldn't take pictures of faces. So they did that, and, they, and in taking those pictures, they told something of their story. And I have this book, and I was looking at it recently to understand what we're looking at, and to realize that one of the women was taken when she was eight years old. Eight years old. And she grew up, and this is what she lived in, this type of a, a situation. It's just awful. Another was 13. And these women are mourning the fact that there are certain parts of their life in which they will never, never experience normalcy. Never. It's not even a possibility anymore. That was taken away from them by the violence of men who were oppressing them. And to look at that, and to, to not just read that and say, oh, what a shame, and then move on but to take it to God because of the violence around us. You remember not just Noah, but Jonah. That guy we always get mixed up with each other, right? We, we uh, always get them confused. Both of them have to do with water, I think, is a, a part of that. But Jonah, the king of Nineveh, Jonah walked around and said, 40 days, God's going to destroy you. That's it. That was his gospel message. So filled with love. But the king understood what the issue was, and in chapter 3, verse 8, he wrote, Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Violence. The Lord Jesus Christ, as a part of the Godhead, sent the flood because of violence. The Lord Jesus Christ, a part of the Godhead, sent Jonah to Nineveh because of the violence. Do you believe that Jesus cried out to the Father for the violence? Are we joining with our high priest when we cry out to God for the violence around us? And we ask him that he might show himself as the Prince of Peace? Yes, 
violence around us is one of the reasons, one of the cares that we need to bring. The second is division in the church. In John chapter 17, verse 22, Jesus prays, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. And that's a wonderful verse. Do you know when he prayed that? He prayed that in the Garden of Gethsemane. At the same time that he's crying out, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. He's crying out, let them be one. In Proverbs, we read of the six things, even seven, that God hates. And one of them is those who sow discord between brethren. God hates that. If we pray for the unity of the church, if we pray against division in the church, are we not capturing something of the desire of Christ? Should we not allow that to be a burden, a care in our lives? that we bring before God, that He might bring peace. But the greatest passion of Jesus is for the salvation of souls. We read of this in Matthew chapter 9. Verse 36. Seeing the people, He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech, that is, with prayer and supplication, crying out loud with tears, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus looked upon the people and he saw. He saw that they were one. He saw that they were lost. And his compassion was built inside him and he cried out that God would bring relief and he commanded us to pray that God would send out workers into the harvest. Moments before he is to be arrested, we read in Matthew chapter 23, maybe days, he says in verse 37, he looks upon Jerusalem Jerusalem, the city where he's going to be condemned to death, the city where he is going to receive the mock trial. He looks upon Jerusalem, the city that has rejected him. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her cheeks, ch chicks under her wings. You were unwilling. His longing, even at this point, even at this moment, is that they might receive salvation. And he cries out to the Father, this prayer, oh, that they would come. Oh, that they would come. Are you burdened by the violence around you? Are you burdened by the division in the church? Do you care about the salvation of souls? Bring those cares to your great high priest because he can save. Who did Jesus turn to? He turned to the one who was able to save him from death. The one who's able. Don't only bring your cares, also bring your sin. To bring your sin... You know, it's our natural tendency to hide our sin from God, isn't it? 
Isn't that our first, first reaction when, when, when we sin? It's to hide from God. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? Right? Adam and Eve sinned. What was the first thing they did? Hid. Right? They made, they made fig coverings for themselves. They heard, heard God in the garden and they ran off and they hid. It's not real bright, but it is our natural inclination. Right? Uh, our natural inclination. Well, let's do something that's impossible. That'll be better. You know, it, it doesn't cross our mind. Oh, let's go to our loving Father who will forgive us. <laughs> but we should. It reminds me of the, the boy who's sitting in a room and he's got uh, mom's uh, photos and he's pulled them all out and is cutting them up with scissors, right? And uh, mom comes in and looks at him and looks at the pictures and looks up at him and he's there with picture in one hand and scissors in the other and all of the evidence around him, he says, I didn't do it. I don't know about you, sounds a little like someone I know, right? <laughs> I, could, I could see myself doing that because we want to hide on a darker, heavier note. Philip Yancey tells a story in two of his books about a prostitute who came to him in all of her shame. And her shame wasn't just her, her acts as a prostitute. Her, her shame was the fact that she was selling her little child in order to maintain her drug habit. And in talking with her, he says, have you ever thought to go to the church? And her response, why would I go there? I already feel horrible. Yeah. That's our natural inclination. Why would I go to God? I already feel awful. Because we, we, we misapprehend what he's able to do for us and what he offers to us. So we hide our sin. But you see... When we understand what this means, that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, what we begin to see is he's a safe place to go with our sin. Learned obedience. What does that mean, right? And some of you are, you know, a little more scholarly have been waiting for me to get to this one and say, yeah, let's see how he deals with that, right? That's a, that's a toughie. We'll see what he does. Well, I think it's, it's simple when we begin to understand, first off, that obedience is actually foreign to the experience of God. Jesus never experienced obedience until he became a man. In the Godhead, there's no need for, for obedience. Obedience is meaningless. Obedience requires there to be two wills, right? And one of them submits to the other and does it. But there's no two wills in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's a single will in the simplicity of God. That's all that there is. It's in, impossible that they would have two different wills. It's impossible that they would in any way ever want to do two different things. They have one will together as the Godhead. This is, this is what we want. They will accomplish it together using different uh, ways, but it's their own will together. So Jesus didn't experience obedience until he became a man, and then he had a physical will as different from God the Father, and he submitted that will to God the Father, and in that he learned obedience. That is to say, he experienced obedience. In addition, suffering is foreign to the experience of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were perfect for all of eternity, which is difficult to understand because it wasn't time. And he was completely blessed in and of himself and he needed nothing else, nor was anything lacking. There was no concept of, of suffering that could happen in the Godhead. He doesn't experience that. But when Jesus became a man and is born... Now he's got suffering. Whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> is this what I signed up for? He sees it instantly. And then he lives his life, a man of suffering, acquainted with grief. 
And in that suffering, obedience is proven. Think about that. In obedience, I'm sorry, in suffering, obedience is proven. Boy, it's really important to turn that around. Isn't that what we see in the book of Job? Job chapter 1, verse 9, we see that God has been bragging on Job. And so Satan says to God the Father, he says, Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Here, Satan is the father of cynicism. He assumes that the only reason anyone would obey God the Father is because they're going to get something out of it, right? Isn't that the, the cry of cynicism? That no one does things because it's right. No one does things because it's good. People only do things for what they can get out of it. Next time you're tempted towards cynicism, consider who the father of cynicism is. Just think about that and wonder, should I really run into that? I don't think so. But he lays this out. And so what happens? So God says, okay, you can go ahead and strike him. And so he takes his, uh, his children, all of his wealth, it's all gone. And how does that horrible person, Job, respond? He said, I was naked when I came. I'm naked when I leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he did not sin against God, but he maintained his integrity. And so Satan comes back to God. And he says in chapter 2, Satan answered, verse 4, the Lord, and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. Saying, yeah, it wasn't hard enough. No one's going to serve you if it costs them dearly in their own flesh. So he brings this horrible curse upon him. And at the end of Job, we hear God declare that, he did, that Job responded righteously. His friends did not. Job did not sin, and he maintained his integrity. What do we see about that? Well, we see this idea that it was in the suffering that the obedience of Job was proven. Even so, it was when Jesus suffered that his obedience was proven, that he was willing as a human being to submit his will to the Father, even though it cost him his life. Why did he become a man and suffer? To pay your debt to pay for your sins. That's the only reason that he learned obedience through what he suffered. Because we sinned. And he came to pay that price. If that's true, I don't have to hide my sin from him, do I? I can bring him my sin because he's already paid for it. For God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Does that sound familiar? Didn't we hear that today? I don't have to be afraid. I can confess. And if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Will you confess today the sin that you've committed? Bring it to God. Come to him with your burdens. Bring him your cares and bring him your sin and receive salvation.
Now some of you are thinking, oh, pastor had gone all Baptist on us. Now we're going to have a, a, a gospel message, right? And they're going to invite us forward. And we're going to, and, and as much as I, I think I might like that, um, it is a gospel message. But it's more than a gospel message. In that if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ before, today is the day. And we're going to talk about that still multiple times yet in the service. But those of us who've trusted in Jesus many years ago, don't we need to receive the salvation today too? It's not that I'm going to lose it but I need to reach up and grab it. I need to bring it into myself. I need to remember it and believe it anew every single day. C.S. Lewis writes about that in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, Now faith, in the sense in which I'm using uh, the word, is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change whatever view your reason takes. I know that by experience. Now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist. But just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. Consequently, one must train the habit of faith. Once again, C.S. Lewis gets it. He understands that believing in salvation is not just something I did December 23rd, 1982. It's something I reach out and grab a hold of every single moment of every single day. I must continually cling to the gospel that Jesus died for my sins according to the scriptures. That becomes the, the, the beating of my heart. That becomes every breath that I take. That becomes the reality, but I must make that conscious choice to reach out and receive it. Time after time. The author turns from the incarnate God to the resurrected Christ in verse 9. And he urges the Jews and us to receive salvation. And that salvation is in his person. Look at verse 9. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It says the source of eternal salvation. The word source is the word itios in, in Greek, which denotes that which causes something. So we may talk about the source of the Nile, Right? And so we, we look around for the source of the Nile. And we may find the place where, where water first comes out of the ground that later becomes the Nile River, right? But is that the source or is that just the place where the water comes out of the ground? What's, where'd the water come from? Right? Isn't that kind of a question that ought to come to our minds? Isn't that more the source? Uh, Stephen Hawking has, has proposed the idea that all of the universe began in a singularity that is a point smaller than an atom. 
in which all of the matter that we now see, all the mass that we now see, has been so compressed through the, the, the pull of gravity that it's, it's, been, it's been sucked into this teeny, 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 tiny little, little place that is this singularity, and all of it's there until that moment in which it bursts forth. And then it spreads out through all the universe, and that's our universe. But what made the stuff? What compressed it into that spot? Isn't that more the source? So we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Now if he did that by putting it all into this little bitty spot and then saying, now! And it bursts it. Okay, that's cool. He's the source then, right? Jesus is the source of our eternal salvation. He's, he's where it begins. He, 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 he brings it into existence. John 14, 6 says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And in Acts 4, 12, we read that there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. He's the source of eternal salvation. And so as we reach out to get that salvation, it's not going to be found in, in a creed. It's not going to be found in a church. It's going to be found in the person of Jesus Christ. He does not say, my way is the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, not through, he doesn't say, but through my church or through my teachings. No one comes to the Father, but through me. He owns that as himself. He is the source of salvation. Notice this phrase that he was having been made perfect. When we hear that, we think going from imperfect to perfect, right? Well, how can we say this about the Lord Jesus Christ? So I've got two problems for you theologians in the same passage. First, how do you learn obedience? What do you mean made perfect? Exactly. What does it mean made perfect? Well, that's answered rather simply. This is where Greek is such a helpful language. Um, the Greek word is telos. And now you're going... Oh, of course, that makes all the difference. Hopefully in a moment you might. Um, telos means complete, to the end. We have a telescope. It's by which we see the end, right? That's what telos means, and that's the word that is used here. It's the root word for the word that Jesus says upon the cross when he says, it is finished. And it's reached its completion. He could have said, it is perfect. That's what the word means. Meaning then that the exact purpose of Jesus' incarnation was accomplished. When was that accomplished? The exact purpose of Jesus' incarnation. When was he made perfect? When had he fully completed his incarnation? When he moved the stone, when he stepped out of the tomb, when he raised himself from the dead, that's the point. That's when salvation is complete. That's why he came here, was in order to bring salvation to us in his person. Will you draw close to that person who's the source of salvation? That means in worship here today, to really draw close to Him. Tomorrow morning as you have your personal devotions, don't, 
Don't read your Bible. Listen to the voice of Jesus. Don't say your prayers. Talk to God. Because He's there with you. Meet with Him. And it changes the whole thing. And we, in that way, receive salvation. He's also the only way. It says that He's designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Designated, which means called by name. The Father appointed Jesus as a high priest. The President of the United States will appoint, according to the Constitution, the President of the United States appoints justices to the Supreme Court, right? And what the President of the United States does is does not necessarily appoint the very, very best judges there are, right? This is the perfect, this is the greatest of all of them, no. But it's someone who is qualified. There are certain qualifications that need to be met, and that's what the, the Senate does in the confirmation, is to be sure that this individual meets those qualifications, and that's what they do, right? But there are many people who could be designated to that. But when God appoints a high priest, he too appoints the one who is qualified. Just so happens there's only one. For the one who's going to function as our high priest must first of all be God Almighty himself. No one else will do, because no one else will have the ability to live a perfect life, and no one else will be of such immense value that their death can pay the penalty for billions of sins. God alone can do that. But he must also be fully man. Because the, bulls, the blood of bulls and goats won't take our place. An angel won't have value enough. So he's got to be a man just like us who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And then he can be the high priest. And Jesus is that way. He's the only way. He's the only one. Trust him today. Trust Him today, first of all, if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. You're being called by God Himself, saying, believe in Me. That is to say, recognize that you've sinned, acknowledge that, tell God that you've sinned, tell Him that you're sorry, and ask Him to forgive you because of Jesus. Do that now. But you who have trusted in Jesus for many, many years, the invitation is to you too. Do you trust Him this moment? Will you trust him now? How about now? That can either become annoying or it can be life-giving. The choice is ours. Reach out and receive him today. You see, we can come to church and never actually come to our high priest. I like the song by Scott Wesley Brown, Don't come to church before you come to Jesus. I like that. I'm not sure I believe every part of that. Sometimes coming to church is how you come to Jesus, and that's okay. But church can't save you. The Apostles' Creed can't save you. The Westminster Confession of Faith can't save you. I, as your pastor, can't save you. There's only one who can, and that's your great high priest. Come to him today. Come with your burdens and receive salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come. We are here now because you have invited us to come. We come with our burdens, and they are many. I've listed a few, but there are so many more that we bring. We ask that you would intercede on our behalf. And we come, and we receive your salvation. We believe, Lord Jesus, that you save us.
no one else. And we rest in you. Father, I pray that there's no person here today who will leave who does not yet know you. Please do this work of salvation for Jesus' sake. Amen.